This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. And hello everybody, I am coming to you, uh, well, good whatever the time of day it is, can you dig it? How are you? I am good. I just asked that question to myself, I don't know why, I, it's been a long fucking week, I don't know. Um, it is a Friday night, I just, um, it's about 7.10ish where I'm at, so um, got off of work a couple hours ago and just kind of was chilling out, I was uh, actually finishing the edits to this, I watched the episode, or an episode of The Sopranos. And uh, Sopranos, Sopranos, Tomato, Tomato, whatever the fuck. And um, wanted to actually sticking to my schedule this week. Wanted to get this done before Saturday. And I usually do these things. If you guys pay attention to my opening rambling nonsense bullshit about um, on Saturdays the last couple weeks, and kind of wanted to break out of that routine because I want to free up my weekends more. So this is the first time I have accomplished that mission by getting my blogging and my writing and my editing done earlier in the week. Or my, not my editing, I'll probably do my editing and uh, revisions and citations tomorrow, but, or really my citations. But um, wanted to just kind of you know stick to the schedule this week and hey, look at that, I did it. So proud of myself, but I wanted to get this out as well because I wanted to really you know hammer home this topic because it's very personally applicable for me just because I live it every day. And I've been seeing it more and more, and I was, you know, having conversation, uh, multiple conversations actually, with my with my mom about uh, privacy, about things that are going on in the world today, and particularly in um, the workplace and the work environment. So we have a different type of environment. My dad and I probably have more applicable conversations about this, just because my dad is uh, in business and I am in business as well. My mom is a physical therapist, so it doesn't really affect her that much because she is a medical practitioner. But to me and uh, my dad and people, most of my friends, my coworkers, all that other stuff, this affects them a great deal. And it's a trend that I've really been noticing. And I think it's kind of really been a trend that I have been completely and utterly immersed in since I never knew a typical workplace environment before the pandemic hit. So this is kind of all I've known. And I just, it's kind of been, you know, a shock to the system to realize that you know, people that were saying how the world was before this and how the world is after this and all the other things that are happening, um, how it compares to everything and what's going on. So I think it's really important that, you know, we at least shed some light on this. I could be very wrong on this topic. Maybe people feel very differently than I do, but I always like to push back on these sorts of things because I'm, well, one, I'm just a, uh, I'm a contrarian fuck and like to do these things sometimes. And two, I believe that, you know, we should be pushing back against things that we feel are wrong, not necessarily with, you know, chucking Molotov cocktails into, into cop cars and, you know, like storming the Capitol building, but, you know, in just, just getting people to think about this kind of stuff. So this is more of a thought piece than anything else, but I think it has some serious validation to it. And I will get that validation started with the quote, we cannot let them run this nation because they hate it. The massive wub drops in from the speakers. On December 20th, 2020, the Youth Conservative Organization Turning Point USA held their annual Student Action Summit in Palm Beach, Florida. The organization, run by Charlie Kirk, Brandon Tatum, and formerly Candace Owens, has been notably infamous in the recent years for their constant and unrelenting support of Trumpian conservatism. Charlie Kirk, the founder of the organization and the man with quite possibly the most punchable face in all of political discourse, is the ringleader of most of this activity. 
his Twitter logging millions of interactions and calling out left-wingers for basically anything that he doesn't agree with, which is basically everything that, well, I think it actually is everything they say. But anyways, due to the high-intensity focus on the ideological front in college campuses, Kirk's movement has grown from a grassroots fringe outlier to one of the most potent political organizations centered around young people in the world. With all the momentum going on, be, going on behind its sales now, Turning Point reaches its apex every year at the aforementioned summit, a massive multi-day event with enough conservatives to make even the most modern, moderate Republican orgasm. Listed speakers for this past summer's event included Donald Trump Jr., James Lindsay, Rob Smith, Kaylee McEmany, Ron DeSantis, Michael Knowles, Ted Cruz, and Ben Carson. But none of those aforementioned names spoke the opening sentence of the blog, or, or podcast in this case, or received a Diplo-esque bass drop to their monologue. That right was reserved for the most sensible person at this event, our friend Tucker Carlson. Now, a lot of you might have some choice words for this particular breed of Fox News host, and I wouldn't blame you. I was originally very, very anti-Tucker Carlson, falling for the rhetoric that he was some kind of wild right-wing ambush journalist. Some sort of radical, one that must be silenced, or else his speech might taint the rest of us good people in the country. And as it turns out, Tucker Carlson is a radical, but not in one the way that you might initially propose. Tucker Carlson is a radical because he speaks a language that far too people, far, particularly in our media environment, or far, far few people, particularly in our media environment, pardon me, speak. Common sense. After Carlson laughed his trademark laugh at the obvious absurdity of his opening monologue about left-leaning politicians and their handlers ruining the country being juxtaposed to the dubstep house beat and to people chanting his name of the cable news host in rabid fashion, he entered into his actual speech. He first started, weirdly enough, even for him, by explaining his living situation, which is fully explained in his biography to his new upcoming book, The Long Slide, in the middle of nowhere. After an incident where terrorist Antifa members chanted, we quote, we know where you sleep outside of his house in our nation's capital, he and his family moved to the Panhandle of Florida, otherwise known as the most desolate place other than parts of Central America in the modern world. Afterwards, he announced the premise of his address, which was, what is actually going on? Now, after an intro like that, I was half expecting Carlson to devolve in some kind of bizarre diatribe against the Democratic and liberal parties, decrying them for everything under the sun, from global warming to rising interest rates. But instead, he took the other route he could have taken, the one of radical common sense. He targeted both conservatives and liberals mercilessly in what he called the ruling class of society. That's where I got the term from, and I applied it to the post to or the podcast a couple weeks ago, The New Counterculture, and why I use it quite frequently in almost all of my blog posts, including this one. I've long argued for about a year and a half now since that original post that the war that is dividing our, the nation that I love is not between left and right. It's simply too simple of an assumption and an accusation. It's a matter of up and down and a matter of class, but not one purely of monetary status, one of authoritarian hierarchy, one who condescends and looks down upon the other one even when they have full reason not to do so. But pointing at our elected political leaders is too easy, too much low-hanging fruit. No. In this speech... Carlson pointed to the other elephant in the room, the one that people are much less deaf to point out. Corporate America. Big companies, according to Carlson, are perhaps the biggest problem that are the cause of the indoctrination of young Americans in today's age. And when you hear about it, this is, and when you hear about it, this is, once again, radical common sense. Think about it. How many of your friends work for large companies? Probably a lot of them, especially if you went to a decent enough university. But these people are dangerous, wolves in sheep's clothing, according to Carlson. Quote, Your enemy, as horrible as they are, is not some crazed ideologue wearing black spray-painting statues. That person is low with them and should be in jail. Trust me, I call for that nightly. But your actual enemy is the person who's funding him, and is making that kind of behavior possible, and is doing it for a very specific reason. To tear down the past. To destroy the past. The point of this is so that they can eliminate all reference points. If you have no idea what came before you, you have no idea what normal is. You cannot understand the consequences of what's happening now if you can't look to the past and understand the consequences of the same behavior in another time. End quote. For the rest of his speech, Tucker Carlson gave an impassioned address about what's really important in life. Getting married while you're, quote, too young, and having one more child than you can, quote, afford, were his other pieces of advice. Don't fall for the fake digital world we live in now. Live in reality, with real people. Anyone who takes those real things from you, or tries to distract you with things that aren't, does not want the best for you. 
they're the enemy. Radical common sense. Follow the money. And who has the most money? Those are the most money. The biggest and most notorious corporate powers in America. And they're finally realizing it. And I believe their primary target is young people. And they have malicious intent to your non-work life, even if they don't state it openly. And why would they? They claim to preach what's important in life. A, quote, good job, work-life balance, living with purpose, loving what you do. But do they really? Now, at this point, I feel obligated to state for the millionth time, probably the million first, millionth and first time. I'm a hardcore capitalist. I love capitalism. I believe it's one of the single greatest innovations ever created by mankind, even though it didn't make my list a couple weeks ago that I drew up. It's created more prosperity and wealth that is even fathomable when you break down the numbers, especially over time. It's given people more opportunities to do what they feel to find meaningful. It's lifted an enormous amount of people out of poverty and has improved our lives in more ways than we can count by leaps and bounds. Is it a perfect system? Of course not. No system is. But it's the best one we have, and I don't think it's particularly close compared to the other alternatives, rather. But two things can be true at the same time. Capitalism can be great, and those that comprise the capitalist system can be manipulative and rotten. This is the situation that is currently manifesting itself into America, and is slowly taking over an insidious trickle-down effect that is bleeding into the American economic engine. And, as someone who cares deeply about that economic engine, I feel the need to, to defend it, to provide personal context. Here, or, oh god, that was really off-key. To provide personal context, here's something that happened to my day job, no, I don't do this for a living, last week. Some of you guys might have heard before, but I work at a large company doing technology sales. And I recently underwent a promotion with an accompanying move. That's why I moved from Boston to Texas and you've been following me over the last couple months. The first day of my new job, my new promotion, my internal company line of business that I reported to decided to drop a nuke onto itself. Complete reorganization with me having no place in the reorg. Therefore, no one knew where to put me. I spent my first six weeks of the promotion without a manager. I was left completely adrift up until the third week of July, where one was finally put into place. He and I fortunately hit it off right from the jump. He was young, sharp, and relatable, and I liked him immediately. Two weeks into my new manager's start, the man who heads the entire organization scheduled a two-day manager summit with someone who called themselves a, quote, organizational behavioral psychologist. It was scheduled for back-to-back -back Fridays for five hours each time, which, over Zoom, is the equivalent to a two-eternity sandwich with no condiments. The Monday after the second one, we got into our Zoom room for our typical team meeting and asked him how it was. My manager had one word for it. Weird. It turns out this, quote, organizational behavioral psychologist that was hired by the head of my organization wasn't down to talk business or culture. Instead, he wanted to talk about their feelings. For what was basically a five-hour-long group therapy session, all the managers and leaders of my organization got incredibly personal, delving into things such as their current relationships and childhood trauma. Many burst into tears on camera. Some had to leave the virtual room. My manager was, understandably, uncomfortable. He chalked it up to him maybe being a tough, stoic Mexican guy, but it turns out he didn't like to talk about his feelings in front of people he barely knew, particularly in a work setting. And I would take my manager's analysis one step further. It wasn't just weird. It was completely and utterly inappropriate. In what world, in what place of work, should you feel pressure in front of your boss's boss's boss to open up about your private life, to divulge your entire, entire emotional catalog to people you barely know and when you yourself didn't even know what was going on until you were on the call. That's not spontaneity. That's ambush. That's not culture building. That's invasive. Now, could people have boned up and said, um, no, I'm not fucking telling you about the time my dad spanked me with a wooden spoon when I was eight years old? Of course they could have. But it's not that simple. In our current corporate environment, the pressure to conform, to obey, is immense. In the work-from-home era, that pressure, at least from an employee's perspective, and particularly mine, has gotten worse. A couple of weeks ago, Netflix fired three high-level marketing executives for remarks toward their boss. Not an act of insurrection, not an act of, quote, hate speech. Simply griping about her. Talking by the water cooler now is an act of disobedience, and it must be mercilessly and swiftly enforced. Feelings of burnout are rising across all industries because no one can entangle their home life from their work life. Companies like Lockheed Martin are forcing draconian diversity, equity, and inclusion training upon their employees, cudgeling them into compliance with their inherent awfulness. And no one, I would argue, is more affected or exposed by this than young people, 
because young people have known no other such existence, like I alluded to before. Our existence in the corporate structure is one of total brainwashing, a merciless infiltration into our day-to-day -day working lives, which is now beginning to seep into our personal ones as well. And in order to dissect this problem, we need to know the why and how behind their motives, and then come up with an antidote to combat them in order to take back our privacy and our lives. Two weeks ago, LinkedIn News ran an article that was circulated by Business Insider and the HR Exchange Network about office perks. The trends read that with Generation Z, the types of things that workers want to be given to them from their employers when they go to work for them was different than their prior generation, the Millennials. Millennials were more materialistic, and they wanted things given to them in the form of tangible goods. Free dry cleaning, nap pods, catered lunches, all expensed on the corporate dime. This led to companies, particularly with those with massive investment, leading what was called a, quote, hub migration. This phenomenon meant more emphasis on the physical work environment itself, with the largest companies blowing massive amounts of capital to enhance the work experience to all of their employees, but particularly their freshest, newest, and youngest talent. It was not enough for companies to have a building anymore. They had to have campuses. Massive plots of land were soon, soon scooped up by the acre and turned into modern, trendy gardens of Eden complete with baronet sauce and ergonomic desks. The pinnacle of this corporate revolution could be exemplified perfectly by Google's headquarters in Northern California, otherwise known as the Googleplex. If you've seen the internship, that's, uh, it's a great movie, it's hilarious. Uh, that is where this takes place. The Googleplex resides in an enormous 2 million square feet, combined with shuttles going through it for free work transportation. Companies like Oracle and Salesforce own apartment complexes that are little, quite literally tens of feet from the front door of the office building. The osmosis of in-work and out-of-work life was nearing completion. Ambitious young professionals lined up to apply for these companies, particularly in the booming sectors of finance and technology, in droves. In the words of Jedi Master Yoda, quote, If so powerful you are, why leave? But then the power stopped. The reason for its cessation was twofold. The first change is a matter of demographics, the second a matter of externality. And let's start with the first reason. The year 1995 is the somewhat generalized context for the transition between the two generations, the Millennials and Generation Z. Generation Z is typically represented as any child that was born between the middle of the 1990s up until around 2010, although this has been widely disputed. I still can't understand why they fuck they can't get this right, but whatever. The two generations diverge, in my estimation, on two primary fronts, the front of digital immersion and the front of materialism. Generation Z was born, particularly later on in the timeline, in an era where the digital world was ubiquitous with their lifestyle. Most can't remember a time before the internet or having a fucking 50-pound box stapled to the back of their television. Conversely, however, Generation Z is opposed much more to the materialistic qualities of the millennials. Many of them don't dream of owning cars or homes or anything, really. Further, they dream of their generation being more, quote, equal, the playing ground being leveled on all matters of advancement, opportunity, and well-being. And it's the last one that's essentially important here. The mental health debate in this country was rapidly accelerated by Generation Z, which has been proven by research done by social psychologists such as Jonathan Haidt. With the world changing so rapidly and the majority of the transformation having at least a minor digital component to it, Generation Z was socked in the face of the reality of their environment. Naturally, they sought to counteract that sometimes harsh reality with a solution, a focus on well-being. Now, while you can say that our country has overused the phrase mental health a lot, and I definitely believe this to be the case, it does not necessarily mean this, this was the wrong approach. Remember, two things can be correct at the same time. A lot of our work behavior for a long time was very unhealthy, particularly as you advance your career. I've written before about my, how my dad was killing himself during his corporate climb, and how I drove myself into the ground quite literally by cudgeling myself with my own ambition. A correction was needed. While I believe a lot of that correction eventually morphed into an overblown emotional overcompensation, the intentions were, I believe, good. Which then brings us to the reason of externality. With any massive change, there, or societal change, I should say, there are usually two components, a period of buildup and a breaking point. The racial protests and riots in the last year and a half were built up by years of frustration and were broken open when Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. 
America's tension with the Middle East was built up by years of botched foreign policy and was broken open by 9-11. The rise of the Nazi party was fueled by years of anti-authoritarian government and was broken open by the hyperinflation crisis and after effects of World War I. The externality that broke open the floodgates for this change is one that we're all too familiar with. COVID. The beer virus changed a lot of things about our lives. But for young people, other than the tragic reality of the potential loss of a family member, I would argue that nothing was more fundamental to our everyday lives than the way that we work. Remote work and the work-from-home era that has become a reality has completely upended and accelerated the desired state of what we want work to look like. In my personal case, I haven't stepped foot in a single foot inside of a building that my company that I work for. I've been to the parking lot and looked aside a couple times, so I never once been on the inside of the monolith of the corporate giant that I call my employer. The reality, instead, has been that we have taken been away from our physical workplaces, some of us for the entire duration of our adult employment, it is in my case. But something else has happened in reverse, something quite paradoxical. We're working now more than ever before, it seems. The osmosis that the corporations so desired with their former allures have now been stitched together seamlessly for the simple reasons that our work can now never leave us. Which brings us back to the original pieces penned by the authors in the first part of this section. In the article by David Rice in the HR Exchange Network, he named the two primary benefits that young employers in Generation Z were looking for in their choosing and sharing loyalty with a potential employer. Being valued as a member of a team and being respected as a person who has a life outside of work. As a person who fits this demographic and knowing a lot of people around me that do as well, I can say from personal experience that this largely rings true. And our corporate overlords know it. Zoom has grown by thousands of percent since the start of the pandemic, as of a desire for services such as comparable substitute Microsoft Teams. All of this fits in the desire to be, quote, valued as a team member. With Zoom, everyone can collaborate constantly. In fact, we're glued to it. And the second value is also being widely implemented. For example, at my company, we got an email from the leadership team last winter that they were extending flexible work from home forever. Well, depending on your manager, but still. This was a shock to us all, particularly for people that myself that uprooted their entire lives to move for this opportunity. And we weren't the only ones. LinkedIn had a similar policy. Dropbox went primarily remote, the first major company to commit to doing so. Massive startups since his Midwestern giant Olive allow their employees to work from wherever as well. In went the Zoom calls and sweatpants. Out went the espresso bars and vegan ice cream. In went the respect. Out went the materialism. But Gen Z had more demands. A whopping 70% of their employees, and you can guarantee it to be more in this demographic, want their companies, formerly neutral service providers, to take stances on political and social issues. This was, again, another seismic shift. Vivek Ramaswamy, a former biotech entrepreneur and author of the upcoming book Woke Inc., refers to this movement as, quote, woke capitalism. They see the passion that these young people have, and they're taking notice. Ben Shapiro, in his new book, The Authoritarian Moment, explains in great detail statistics about how, across all industries, businesses have shifted to take subtle steps in encroaching on our deep-felt emotions. So, the question we need to ask is, why do they care? And the reason is because they want to control you. The inconvenient bottom line that no one wants to realize in the situation we find ourselves in is that the very purpose of business itself Last year, I wrote a piece on shareholder theory versus stakeholder theory. Shareholder theory, the marvel work of modern economics pioneered by Milton Friedman, states explicitly that the only purpose of a business is to make money to increase shareholder return. Stakeholder theory, on the other hand, a newer theory popularized by ruling class members such as Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff, states explicitly that the only purpose of a business is to make money to increase total well-being for all that are affected by that business, which is a radical difference. The trend, at least in Generation Z, is bending more towards stakes rather than shares. But the only problem with this is that the economy doesn't work that way. The purpose of business business in our world right now is not stakeholder theory, but shareholder theory. Every single corporation is financially obligated by their shareholders, the government, and other people to increase their returns at all costs or or face dire consequences. No matter what they say, Every action that a corporation takes is to increase profits and keep their investors fat, happy, and quiet. The viability of a company, as I and many others would tell you, is almost completely dependent on the viability of the people comprising the company itself. 
and in corporations, particularly the bigger ones, there is no group that is better suited to the pipeline of talent they have coming in. Younger workers are malleable and vulnerable because they simply have to be. They're young, hungry, and cheap. They're the most healthy. They can work the longest. They have the most to prove. And they know that too. The viability of a company, therefore, I would argue, is dependent on the viability of its young people comprising the company itself. A company without a plan for the future, particularly when things seem to become more and more uncertain by the day, is a company whose stock will be most likely going to zero far sooner than expected. Because of this, the survival of large corporations will depend on the incoming pipeline of talent coming in and their existing loyalty to them after their absorption. Ray Wang of Constellation Research released a study that revealed that since 2003, 52% of Fortune 500 companies no longer exist, primarily because of phenomena such as digital disruption, rapid innovation, and pivoting. This pace is only accelerating, as he wrote recently in his new book, to unprecedented levels. The market is becoming more and more hostile, the oceans turn, turning from a calm blue to a frantic red. The road ahead is less than ideal. Bullets will fly, and only the strong will survive. And the strongest in this scenario are those that can weather the storm ahead. The strongest, the ones who can weather the storm ahead, are those who are most adept to take that pounding. The strongest are the youngest, and corporate America is currently executing a full-scale invasion to capture as much of this particular market as possible. That's why corporate America is descending into wokeness dominated by both sides of our mob and ruling class. That's the reason for the pivot in corporate benefits. That's why they release plans for carbon neutrality, equity, and philanthropic stock-sharing plans. In the words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Capitalism is, is an unequivocal net positive for society, but the toll that it's currently taking on their workforce, particularly the young and impressionable, is far from a net positive. The invasion has come and passed. The revolution has been televised. Our personal lives have been effectively compromised in the name of climbing the corporate ladder and, quote, doing your part. Next, we will fi find out how. The end of May and beginning of June of this year was a crazy time for me. In less than one week, I had to move my life across the entire country, get onboarded onto a new position in a completely different sector of my company for my promotion, and complete the hardest physical challenge in my life. Oh, and it was Memorial Day weekend, and my mom pulled the whole passive-aggressive, quote, well, aren't you going to spend time with me thing? So that was something I had to attend to as well. I love you, Mom. I know you don't listen to my podcast. My mom doesn't listen to my stuff. She thinks, uh, she thinks I swear too much, and I probably do. So sorry about that, Mom, but I love you. In this period of immense transformation, I had to believe leave behind and cut ties to a lot of people in my life. In post-COVID-era COVID Boston, it wasn't much, but it was still something. I said my goodbyes, some of them virtual, to my colleagues and friends and set off for Texas. I knew leaving that I would never see or speak to most of them ever again. It's a sad thing, but it's the way the world works. You only have so much ban bandwidth and you need to be present where you are. But there was one person who I really hoped would keep in touch with all the people out of all the people I was leaving. She was a co-worker of mine, and we had worked on the same team since our first day onboarding together on the job. In fact, she was the only person I knew before making the transition to my company itself, and it was out of sheer serendipity that she ended up working close enough fashion to me where we could collaborate as a team member. She was also incredibly competent, smart, and talented. She was the person on my team that I had the most respect for, and we had a great team. My last day of work was the Tuesday before Memorial Day and she slacked me in the morning asking if we could do less, one last impromptu Zoom session. She was the only one of my teammates that did. On that Zoom, we expressed our mutual admiration for one another as colleagues and friends, and she offered to set up a bi-monthly cadence so we could keep each other updated on how we were doing. I was elated, so I accepted. During the course of the last couple months, her and I had been meeting weekly to discuss, or this is before I moved. So during the course of the last couple months before this, her and I had been meeting weekly to discuss career progressions. As two of the better new hires across the organization, all we had to do was angle ourselves properly into position, in order to position ourselves to snag a promotion. While having all the ability in the world, the one thing my coworker needed help with was her confidence in talking to people of higher authority. As someone who doesn't give a single fuck about pandering to higher authority in order to, quote, present myself a certain way, 
I helped her out with this. And to her credit, she improved tremendously, as I thought she would, and also didn't come off like a jackass, something that definitely could be attributed to me and my non-fuckery. She ended up getting the job she desired, and we were both elated. She zoom-dialed me, an absolutely terrifying experience via an end of misfortune, and also something she never does, which speaks to the urgency of the scenario, and told me the good word as my apartment was in shambles and my mother behind me frantically helping me organize. We had our cadence set up, and agreed to update one another on our progress when we had something to report. Due to massive changes in the company, we couldn't meet until around a month after we'd both started our promotions. When we got on, I did my usual thing, bordered to tears and highly exacerbated my stories, and then offered her a chance to stomach them and talk about her position. She said that she was crazy busy, so busy that she was working after hours every single night in order to accommodate her schedule. A mental red flag shot up, and I thought this to be bizarre. I was logging off at 5 o'clock every day and didn't feel like I was leaving anything on the table. My friend was having to break her back after hours every single night in order to do her job in, quote, good fashion. Her roommate, also a former colleague and teammate of ours, was getting annoyed. For an attractive, ambitious, and promising young woman in one of the greatest cities that America has to offer, I didn't think this was an appropriate way, to be f- f- appropriate way for her to be spending her time. And I told her very bluntly, quote, Yeah, you need to stop that shit immediately. End quote. But she couldn't, she said. She needed to, quote, work. She needed to, quote, get the job done. To, quote, contribute. These are a lot of reasons that people give. My father gave them every single night at our dinner table as an excuse to why he nearly killed himself by grinding himself into oblivion. But most people, like my friend, don't have three kids, one of which having autism with the need of long-term care, a mortgage, and two sets of parents in their late 70s and early 80s, one of which is declining much more rapidly than the other. Most people our age are untethered from the earth. They're free from the most serious obligations, the most dire commitments. And yet they are all told and have the sense they need not to experience that freedom, that this is their most serious obligation. This is a lie. Before we get to why, let me explain what I'm not saying first. I'm not saying, by any means, that you should not be ambitious. That you should not strive within your workplace. That you should not do your designated job that contains your designated responsibilities to the best of your ability. I am not saying these things. The thing that I love most about capitalism, when it is truly meritocratic capitalism, something that I'm concerned is disappearing, is that it provides opportunity to all people who want to seize it for themselves. It doesn't matter what the fuck you are, who you, lo- who you are, how you look, how you vote, whatever the fuck. At least it shouldn't. All that matters is that the best people rise, and the people that aren't the best sink. This is the most fair way the world, particularly in business, should work, in my estimation. What I am saying, and more on this in the next section, is that, like everything, there is a limit. You will hit a boundary, and you will hit it hard if you're not conscious of it. Excess and its traps lurk everywhere, in all corners of our lives. The people that don't see it coming end up being consumed by it. In addition to the new, the new two jobs I've, in, I've had in my company, I, I, in ad- oh God, that was horrible. In addition to the two jobs I've had in my company, I've had eight, count them, eight, SpongeBob voice, managers. The manager that I liked the most was also the one that I did the best under. He helped me excel in the entry-level position and guided me in deciding upon the next one. Being a lifetime sales guy and a damn good one at that, he knew the ins and outs of how the industry worked no matter what or whom you were selling to. In talking with him one-off, he had a very shocking analysis on every single person in every single industry that they comprise. They never work as much as they say they do. At least most of them, call it 90%. Do some self-analysis real quick, particularly if you're in the working world. How many times do you check your phone and stay on it during work hours? Get sucked into a YouTube rabbit hole? Dick around on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Slack to distract yourself from doing the real work? If you're anything like me, this happens quite often. And I even put my phone away during work. My manager's analysis was that people only work around three hours a day out of the normal eight that they're paid for. Three. That's it. So the proper question is, then, what are the consequences of breaking the norm? The phenomenon of excess has good and bad consequences. The reality is that most people end up getting consumed by excess and make it out alive, end up doing the shit that drives the world forward. And we need those people. People like Bill Gates, Joel Osteen, Nancy Pelosi, and Jocko Willink all fall into this category. Those four people and others like them have changed the world significantly in one way or another. The problem is that now they are internally trapped by the lifestyle that got them there. 
There is no return unless they want to fade into obscurity and have their new world that they constructed fall apart among them. That is the true cost of greatness. If Bill Gates were to immediately stop giving a fuck about climate change, people would look at him funny. If Joel Osteen stopped preaching and living up to the gospel, as he did with the whole Hurricane Harvey snafu, although it's none of my business apparently, people would ask what the fuck he was doing. If Nancy Pelosi decided to drop her entire political agenda and not care about more if conservatives entered Congress, her base would label her a traitor and start gathering pitchforks and torches. If Jocko Willing stopped getting up at 4.30 a.m. and getting some, 21-year-old finance majors listen to Gary B. and become CEOs of dogshit digital marketing companies who have nothing to masturbate to. But back to us. The big lie that I spoke of earlier is specifically pervasive to us in two ways. Pop culture and the university system. And let's dig into both. I've talked, I've talked about pop culture in every single blog post and podcast probably thus far, but particularly in related to hustle culture. From Belfordism to the present, I've argued that the mass infusion of society with culturally enforced comparisons and flexing has done nothing but harm us by robbing us of contentment with what we have. Therefore, what we can reasonably have is never enough. Greed is all we have ever known, ranging from film to social media. In pursuit of these, we feed into people like Grant Cardone who tell us we need to quote 10x our lives, or people like Gary Vee who tells us that no one gives a fuck about you or what you ever did until you're quote hustling to get it. This has become essential with the ego of our generation. It is as a part of us as our blood and bones. To reinforce hustle culture even further, an unlikely threat has come in. The university system. A lot can be said about college in modern America. But what cannot be doubted is the immensely large pipeline of talent that they move from college to corporation every May and December. They're the biggest hotbed of talent across the entire nation. When the lie that perforates our society tells young people that you, quote, need to go to college in order to make it in life, when people like Michelle Obama, once and arguably still today the most influential woman on the planet, says that education is, quote, the most important thing, you're going to get a lot of people to register for classes. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing either. An educated population is a very good thing in a vacuum. But the problem is what the rhetoric around post-college life is inside of a university. And let's take my situation for example. Being a business student, corporate America was the end goal for seemingly everyone. I was fortunate enough to minor in entrepreneurship and innovation while in college and be mentored by very pragmatic and sensible people. Hint, not Grant Cardone and Gary Vee. And everyone else did not have that luxury. It was either big business or big bust. And this struck me as a very peculiar thing. Wasn't college supposed to teach you how to think outside the box? To make you question the establishment if you smell something off and not just mindlessly join it? To push back against institutions of power to see if they could hold down their lunch while telling you to man take mandatory compliance training? Apparently not. It turns out, universities actually have these things called partnerships with large companies. They're advertised all over campus. You can find a list of about 50 recognizable names in my office of career management. The ability to think is not necessary, only the ability to do matters. Once the transition has been made out of the university system, once their most precious resource, young, talented human capital, has been exchanged, the hustle culture is enhanced more. Remember our friend Tucker Carlson when he said that anyone who takes away from what's real in life is your enemy? Well, I can find no more insidious example than this. In late 2018, Bloomberg Law ran a piece that compiled a list of notable companies that sponsored something called employer-subsidized egg freezing. Translation, females could have their reproductive cells sucked out of them, placed in a lab, and pop them into their lady parts whenever they wanted, all on the company's dime. The list of companies that offered this benefit were tech giants Apple, Google, and Facebook, startup megagiants like Netflix and Uber, and top big law firms like Cleary, Gottlieb, and Kirkland and & Ellis. We must ask a question again. What's the point, of, the point of offering such a bizarre corporate benefit? The answer, to control you. To get you to prioritize them and only them. You can just have kids later, they say. You need to work now. You need to make money. You need to prove yourself. Never mind that female fertility peaks at around age 28, and usually without the whole sucking their eggs out, of, out through a straw thing. The most meaningful thing in people's, particularly females' lives, the ability to bear children, can be taken away with a few clicks of an internet browser. And in favor of what, exactly? A couple more dollars added to a 401k? Another benefit situation that comes in mind is one offered by a friend who works in sales for a large Midwestern insure tech company. 
A big part of her benefits package is something that was formerly unheard of. She has unlimited paid time off. Translation, she can take as many days off as she wants and get paid for doing nothing, with no cap on the usage. And my company does something similar. We generally, we generally accrue time off as we work, but it never expires. The only time we need to have to use it is when our higher-ups make us take time off from Christmas Eve through New Year's. We just can keep banking it and pop it off whenever we want to. When I first heard this, I thought it was the sweetest deal ever. She was quick and right to correct me. She hated the benefit. She wished she could trade it in for something else. And I asked her why, very confused as to the nature of the beast she was referencing. And her answer was quite simple. Quote, because they know we'll never take it. And it clicked right away. I knew she was right. And the reason for this is our friend Excess. When something is so abundant, it's easier for us to take us for granted. Scarcity is the biggest thing that drives value. Air is not scarce. We take breathing for granted. Neither, thankfully, is clean water to bathe and drink in. We take bathing and drinking for granted. We don't notice it until we're not breathing or bathing or drinking. The same things happen with paid time off. When there's more PTO than we know what to do with, why the fuck would we take it? We can always take another day off, right? We can just do one more thing, and then we can take a half a day to go to our daughter's soccer game, right? Wrong. With permanent delayed gratification, you feel constantly swamped, not liberated. You can always take some time off, so your brain tricks you into getting all your shit done so you can take the time off. The cruel twist of the psychological knife is that you never will. You're constantly on a treadmill, giving your all for a company that will give you the greatest jo gracious joy of taking all the time off you can ever want, but will never use. Kevin O'Leary is famous for saying that a salary is the drug that they give you to keep you from pursuing your dreams. And that quote is half right. A salary and benefits are the drug that gets you to swear loyalty. And that is the trap. You've put your loyalty in the faith of a false idol at the cost to your livelihood. And it's time we figure out the antidote to this and take that livelihood back. Like all viruses that affect our lives, we require an antidote. We need an antidote and a multifaceted one in order to combat the slippery slope of mind control and unlock the door to other parts of, our, of your life. If we're not careful, probably the example cited up to this post, we end up surrendering our lives to these corporate business behemoths who will do nothing with it that does not immediately contribute to the end deal of being maximized. Because at the end of the day, we are talking about a single part of our lives. It is a very big and important part. Whatever you use to feed yourself is a crucial thing to make sure you dedicate proper investment and time to. But there are other things that demand your attention, and there are more important things that need your attention. To neglect those is to, by consequence, surrender to your lowest instincts for something of lower value, and that is something we cannot do. And that's the first ingredient to our antidote. You must get it through your thick and twisted skull that your job is only that. A job. It's not your life. It's only a part of your life. Therefore, any act of allowing one part of your desired whole to consume your life is a foolish endeavor, because you're simply doing wrong value-oriented math. It's emotional overcompensation and a denial of essential diversification. Remember our friend Dave Ramsey. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. This is, understandably, a hard line to draw on the sand for a lot of people, particularly the ambitious types who want to do well, have value in an organization, make a lot of money, who gain social notoriety, whatever the fuck. And these people could be right about their avenue of their life giving them these things. But we must ask ourselves the essential question. What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and you fuck up and you're left with nothing? The ultimate cost of greatness is exactly this. You fail and your life falls apart. I love mob movies with all my heart and soul. Remember, I was just watching The Sopranos before this. And this is how all of them end. Sorry to spoil the ending for you. The guy spends his entire life ignoring essential diversification, emotionally overcompensating all over the damn place, to build up his empire into something that he can be proud of. He cheats on his wife, kills a bunch of people, fucks a lot of other women that are not his wife, hurts people, extorts money, that type of thing. And where does it leave him when it all comes crashing down? When someone rats him out to the feds, or he gets caught cheating on his tax returns, 
or someone catches him ca caving in some dude's ribcage with a tire iron. His empire topples. He's left with nothing at all, just a crushed soul and shattered dreams. This is an undesirable scenario from all facets. There are no positives that can come. Well, at least they change, and from my experience, these guys really aren't that dynamic in their own personalities. While we might not be cheating on our wives and caving dudes' rib cages in with tire irons, our job, and part of our lives, particularly when our ruling class and mob are involved, can be the thing that completely robs us of our identity and leaves us shattered. The big lie, the one pushed by certain systems in our society that nudges us towards pushing the lever of allowing corporate culture to devour our souls, is just that. A lie. The big lie is nowhere near what you should center your internal anchor on. You should focus on it, and you should work diligently to pay attention to it. But at the end of the day, it is not your primary anchor in life. What is your primary anchor in life should be one thing and one thing only. Your values. The reason why this is, because your values can be reflective of everything in life. They are the universal constant that reflects your identity. So, in this sense, maybe the saying should not be to do what you love. And not because it's a fucking stupid saying, even though that's relevant. The saying should be, do what you value. Remember our friend Tucker Carlson. Anything that takes away from, from what is giving you to utility in life and what really means something to you, whether they want to admit it or not, is your enemy. In this kind of relationship, we cannot afford to allow its toxicity to permeate our other areas of existence and meaning. And, as in any relationship, one key to this is absolutely paramount. Furthermore, it's one that most of us suck at. Therefore, we avoid it and end up fucking everyone's shit in one way or another. It's an unpopular topic to bring up, but it must be done. Boundaries. I can hear the screams of trust issues for miles, I understand. I've hurt many people's feelings to boundary issues as well. I'm horrible at defining them in my personal relationships. I was horrible at doing them in my schoolwork as well, as I've talked about ad nauseum. But surprisingly, a switch flipped when I came to work. My career being born in the COVID era, I've known nothing but work from home. I've never set foot in the office building with my company's name on it. I've never had a cubicle or a desk or a framed picture of my non-existent girlfriend to smile at after a customer tells me to go shove my product up my own ass, which is impossible considering I sell software, but oh well. I was simply shipped a laptop, a VPN, and given a day of time to log on to start my rise to the top, or whatever. In my first weeks of training at my new employer, I could see my old habits, particularly those that I pertained to my schoolwork, set to creep in. I knew that if I gave in to the temptations that were set forth on me in terms of working past hours, grinding myself into a fine powder and whatever, that I would inevitably, inevitably crash hard, incredibly hard, per our discussions of diminishing returns of value. Additionally, I knew I wouldn't be able to stop. For me, having a personality that's wired for addiction, it would be nearly impossible to put that genie back in the bottle. And even worse was the fact that in peak COVID-era Boston, there was absolutely fucking nothing to do almost. There was no typical, quote, millennial Gen Z moments of clarity where I went off and partied my ass off, did a shit ton of ecstasy, and dry fucked a girl on a dirty bathroom floor in a, some dive bar in Southie. And while that might not be the ideal life for some non for, for, while that might be the ideal life for some in a non-COVID Boston, it definitely wasn't happening then. Seeing this, my brain automatically saw this as an opportunity to potentially ramp up my, quote, productivity by weaning my soul out and leasing it on the corporate dime. And thankfully, I stopped it. I made a personal rule. Every day at 5 o'clock, the black box of death, i.e. my laptop, was to be shut and was not to be opened again until the morning. And a second one soon followed. The hour between 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock was my time, and no one was to infringe upon it. I forced myself to respect my after-work hours and my lunch break. They were, by the way, my after-hours work and my lunch break. I was going to devote my after-hours work to only the things that did not work, or that did not revolve around work, this blog and podcast being one of the primary ones, you're welcome, and my lunch break to eating lunch and breaking. It was, and is, that simple. It's a binary equation. 2 plus 2 equals 4. But do you sometimes get the wrong answer? Sure you do. There were some times I stayed a little bit past 5 o'clock. I think I worked for a short time a bit on a Saturday once or twice. I have, especially in my promotion and working primarily with companies an hour ahead of me, taking meetings on my lunch, but they are few and far between, and if I do these things, I always make sure to at least get that time, at least attempt to get that time back. I would take a half an hour and gaze off, give my mind a rest, whatever. And I need to balance it out and avoid emotional overcompensation. If you're like most Americans, you get paid to work 40 hours a week, 
So while theory here, work 40 hours a week. Turn your computer off. Take your goddamn email and Slack or whatever unholy messaging app or company uses off your personal phone immediately. Give yourself room to breathe. Give yourself, give yourself space for serenity. If you need to, enable blockers on your device. Freedom is one that I use on my computer and phone for all my vices, which I discovered during my digital declutter of last summer. If you need to break it sometimes, that's totally fine. But to, cook, to Cookie Monster's point, only if it's a sometime deal. Finally, I feel like we need to address the situation that can and should be applied more widely. If you haven't noticed, distrust in our institutions across our nation are going up, and they're going up fast. People are starting to see things that they've barely noticed before. This is the same with business and our careers. A lot of these institutions and the clowns that run them tell you, tell you that they, quote, respect you. Sure, they could, but usually only if there's something in it for them as well. This is all fine, as long as that respect is truly respected. But if they don't, then you have an obligation to leave and find one that does so in proper fashion. A lot of people say that they would like to do this, but do they really? Our public school system has some shady shit going on in it. I know a lot of people who look the other way. I know a lot of people who work for big companies, a lot of them who I mentioned before, who are practicing some suspect stuff. As long as the check clears, they're all good. But remember, these decisions are tied up in your values. Your values term determine everything in your life, from who you drink to who you fuck to who you work 40 hours a week for. So if something conflicts with your values, even if everyone else tells you it's okay, here's a simple solution. Don't participate in it. If a company doesn't respect your wishes to have a life outside of work, fuck that company. If a company actually gives a shit that you use your time off to take a personal day or a vacation, fuck that company. If a company takes time out of their budget and day to tell you that you're inherently an awful person because of something you can't control, fuck that company. If a company does not respect you, fuck that company. If you care, are talented, and work hard, there are plenty of other fish in that sea. Don't compromise your self-worth for a job, or your self-respect for a job, particularly if that job doesn't respect you. You will feel much better if you take your value and go elsewhere, where you can actually live with yourself. Capitalism is one of the most wonderful creations of the modern world, and we should celebrate its benefits that it has brought us. However, like any system, it can become rigid, rotten, and stale if we do not pay attention. When plotting out our lives, we must be aware of bad actors and how they can negatively infect our liberties, lives, and souls should we all lose that attentiveness. Our lives are ours to live, and no one should be allowed to infringe upon our personal agency. A non-tyrannical collective begins the non-tyrannical self, and we must fight these tyrannies in all forms and fashions, or we will surrender the control of our personal lives to those who may or may not have our best aims at heart. Now, how's that for a bass drop? All right, everybody, that was exhausting. That was a lot of uh, that was a lot of talking to my end. If you're still here at this point, I really appreciate it. So, I'll let you guys go. Own the day. Open your mind. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?